If you look at the most evil people in human history, who everyone would agree the most evil, are the extremes of every ideology. Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden, right? Whichever ones you want to pick. And you can go on. What do they all have in common? An obsessive hatred of the Jew. So what does that tell you? In the psyche of the darkest, most depraved parts of humanity, in the most evil parts of the world, darkness and evil hates what stands for good and light. But what you can do is shine more light in the world. Hello everybody and welcome to JTV. I think a lot of people, both Jewish and non-Jewish, over the past few months, certainly since October 7th, have been pretty shocked at the levels of hatred, the double standards, the lies, the demonization. You know, we knew anti-Semitism was something that always existed, but I think we kind of had a, a part of our minds thought, mm, maybe we've graduated from such a uh, severe and overt level of, 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 of hatred. Um, and yet it seems there are still many pockets of society that seem to be addicted to it. And I think it's left some people wondering, is this just like an incurable madness? Uh, and do we have any hope at trying to deal with this um, this severe and deep hatred? And uh, our guest today, Rabbi Daniel Rowe, uh, we were both, first of all, Rabbi, thank you for being here on JTV again. Really, really appreciate uh, your time. Um, we were having a discussion, uh, I think it was about a week ago, and you were saying that it's not just a madness, but there's actually, that there's a deeper rationale not to justify it, but there is a deeper rationale that it's really worth understanding uh, to about this hatred. And actually it's only in understanding it that we can address it and, and try to tackle it head on. So I wanted to devote uh, this, this conversation today to actually understanding the deeper roots of the hatred towards Israel and the Jews. And you actually saying there's something specific about the, the, the restoration of Israel and that, that touches so many nerves for, for people uh, on all sides of this of this debate but um the, the first thing i want to start off uh, talking uh, talking to you about is something that you said to me which it really stuck with me you said you've noticed that people are obsessed with this war but the only thing that they're not covering is the war can you say tell yeah. us what you meant by that well, first of all, it's great to be uh, here, and I hope what we say can be helpful to people, especially those struggling with with what's been this unleashing of waves of, of hatred. And also let me start by saying none of this diminishes the pain that all of us feel, uh, the fact that however necessary feel this war is, there is suffering, right? There are people suffering. But the waves of hatred have been completely crazy and, and obsessive. And we notice that you don't have anything parallel in other conflicts. In fact, if you ask anybody in the world how many wars are going on right now in the world, the average person can't begin to answer that question. Right. How many wars right now have the most casualties? How many wars have the most starvation? Which parts of the world have the most starving people? Gaza, Gaza, Gaza. No, Gaza's got 150,000 tons of food been delivered. That's not the starving part. There's no real danger. But this UN people screaming and shrieking. Is you literally go to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there's 26 million people very close to starvation thanks to war. And, you know, you go to Afghanistan, 20 million. In Yemen, 17 million. Right, starving as a result of war. And you can go on and on and on and on. And people have just not the foggiest clue. So there is an obsession about the war. But what I, I said to you about the most incredible thing is 
in a war where people are obsessed about it and where it's being covered obsessively, like pretty much no other conflict, people don't know about the war. That's amazing. Normally when a war is being fought and you have this level of obsession, like those who are following Ukraine closely will know where the front line is, where the fighting is, what the new weapons are, which drones have come in, that Adivka was recently taken, right, etc. by the Russians, uh, the numbers of reserves, the shortages of munitions. If you're following the war obsessively, you know all these things. You talk about people about the Gaza war. Where did Israel come into Gaza from? You know, when did it get to Jabalia? When did it knock out the main Hamas brigades? This is the real war. People look at you like, what? Uh, what is Jabalia? Which Hamas brigades? <laughs> they don't know anything about the war. There's only been one story covered by the media and covered obsessively from the words go. How many civilian casualties are there? It's like a strange way to cover a war. You know, that's, it's like literally, and it started from the beginning. As soon as the Israelis were hitting the Hamas on October 8th, October 9th, it was, is this disproportionate? What is disproportionate? How much is too much? You know, it's like, it's a crazy thing. It's like, Wars happen, you've got to destroy Hamas. But when, when we in the West, Britain and America, were fighting ISIS, we knew when they were getting to Raqqa, when they were getting to Mosul, what's going on at each stage, right? We also covered every so often the fact that civilian casualties and it's tragic and they get caught up in the crossfire of war, especially when they've been positioned deliberately in the line of fire. But nowhere, one second, it, it, you know, is it too much? And then you get this ludicrous obsession at the other extreme where people start to throw out the word genocide. And I shouldn't laugh because the word is so serious. And you, genocide is but when you try so and destroy absurd. it. It's absurd. If you look at Rwanda, where literally every Tutsi who could have been killed, right, five, six hundred thousand of them were killed. Hundreds of thousands were raped. Right? The population was, was completely diminished, like 60, 70 percent gone. And it would have been 100 percent if not for the counterattack by the Tutsi forces, right? You look at Srebrenica, which is much smaller, but of the males who could have been killed of the Bosniaks, pretty much all were. A third of the population's wiped out by the time, and only less because the military couldn't finish the job. In Nazi Germany, 90% of, of Polish Jewry, of, of every single Jew they could kill in Poland, in Russia, in Hungary, in Lithuania, were just killed. And then <laughs> you can't, I shouldn't laugh. It's, it's tragic that 0.65% of Gaza, according to Hamas's figures, of the civilians have been killed, right? You've got to, you know, they claim 27,000, 28,000. You know, even if you believe those figures, and even if you don't deduct the ones who die every year of natural cause, and even if you don't deduct all the ones who've been killed by Hamas's own missiles and explosives, we just deduct the military from it. And, you know, 17,000 is a terrible, terrible number. Right. It's a horrible. We're talking less than a percent of the civilian population. And even the fact somebody could with a straight face throw out the word genocide, let alone take it to international courts. So, yes, there is an obsession. And as I said to you, the incredible thing about this is when the Jewish army goes to war. And yes, Israel's not just Jewish. It's got Muslims and Christians and ever you know, as well, but primarily it represents a Jewish state to people. When that army goes to war, essentially to protect its civilians against genocide. Right. Hamas is a real threat. It showed it's a real threat. Its threat's going to get worse and worse and worse if it's not destroyed. It's not far off being able to threaten not, ten, not tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands or even millions of Israelis if it could take over the West Bank. And in a war to protect itself, the, that's the war where the word genocide is thrown in. It's insane. But the entire coverage of the war is not how well is Israel doing. Where's the battlefield? Is Hamas being destroyed? The only question is, one sec, Jewish army's gone to war. Are there too many civilian casualties? Are there too many victims of Israel? And it evokes this rage and this, this is the only story. And yes, that is very, very typical of patterns throughout history of the type of demonization that happens to Jews, where, you know, in, in an ordinary 
financial transaction, there might be winners and losers. But when, let's say, when Jews are in an industry, saying, who are the victims of that industry? Let's just focus on the victims of that industry. All oh, the Jews are the demons, these terrible people. Look, it's the worst crime ever done. That's very, very typical of, of anti-Jewish behavior, always. Hmm. Absolutely. And it is so, it's, it's maddening on the one hand, but on the other hand, strangely, it gives me a sense of there's something deeper going on here. And this is touching on or telling me that there's a deeper destiny that the Jewish people have in relation to the, to the world. And that gives me uh, cause for hope, but that also means that we therefore need to understand this and dig deeper and understand what's really going on. And so we, you know, we'll, we will keep calling out all the nonsense and the hypocrisy, um, which is, I think, actually one of the few things uh, that's come as a result of this that I'm grateful for is that the clarity has really been unparalleled in terms of understanding the whole conflict and you know just being seeing the the nonsense claims for what they really are whereas sometimes they would kind of hide themselves in in, in virtue and perhaps some of us were more um believing of that but let's let's now dig deeper um you were saying to me when we spoke last week that if you want to dig deeper into under, understanding anti-Semitism, the first thing to acknowledge is that it's very much, uh, it's much more of a Western um, issue because the, the East uh, seem, and that's something we could talk about as well, I think later, but, but you were saying how if you look at every Western moral story in some way, it touches on Jewish ideas and was inspired often directly by Jewish messages. And that has to affect things. And you said whether it's Christianity, communism, even Nazism, it's all that. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that and why that starts to touch on these deeper underpinnings? Yeah, sure. So I think let, let's make a few points here. First of all, when, so, when somebody hates somebody, they will always see them as evil, right? If you hate anybody in the world, you hate, an, uh, you know, people who hate their ex, spouses or they hate their ex-business partners or or a rival at work or, or anything, their brain starts to prosecute them and see them as completely evil. And I think people don't understand that where their hatred of Israel really comes from. And they haven't throughout history. So, so sorry. So what they do is they try to quickly justify, can we paint Israel in the most demonic language? That would justify my hatred, right? And that's why, by the way, before this conflict, you see almost everyone shrieking and screaming about Israel now hated Israel before. And before this conflict, the conflict most associated online with the word genocide is obviously this conflict, not Nazi Germany, not Rwanda, not Srebrenica, right? And not any of the massive amounts of millions of people dying in hundreds of thousands being killed in Syria, etc. No, it's this conflict. But the one before this conflict was Israel's fight against Gaza in May 2021, where the sum total of people who died was under 300. Right, most of them Hamas fighters, you know, but people are still on the streets. You had 300,000 people on the streets of London. You had hundreds of thousands of people marching all over the world. And in a, just a three week long conflict, right, it evokes a rage. And that rage is so irrational that one needs to quickly justify by throwing horrific terms at it. Right now, what I was pointing out is where does the subconscious rage come from? And it's been there in every century. And no matter what people consciously think, it doesn't work. For example, people consciously thought they hated Jews because 
we're Christians and, and Jews killed Jesus. So as Europe de-Christianized and became very secular, one would have expected and predicted anti-Semitism to diminish. No, now we're nation states. Now we hate the Jews for being disloyal because and they don't really belong to any nation and they're this wandering people who don't have their own land, right? <laughs> okay, so let's let them go back to their homeland and no one will hate them. No, now we hate you because you went there, right? Or, or when Jews were very, very, uh, were, let's say, moneylenders in Europe. Oh, we hate you because you're moneylenders. And, and and you can understand moneylenders go knocking on the doors of poor people and poor people have to pay interest and it's terrible. But why were Jews moneylenders? Typically because they were banned from anything else, right? Christian society needed moneylenders. They couldn't lend with interest, so they forced the Jews to, right? So, okay, but we hate them, right? So as the Jews stopped being the moneylenders, and now it's mostly Italian banking families, anti-Semitism ends, hatred of banking families goes up. No, now we hate all those people sitting in ghettos who are draining society and spreading diseases. Okay, so the Jew comes out of the ghetto. Now you're gonna be free equals. No, now you're running the world, right? Now you're mixing with our blood, right? Etc. 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 It's different because you're different. That wasn't a classical one. You look different. So German jury had the solution in the 19th and early 20th century. Stop looking different. Take this off. Call yourself Friedrich and Heinrich and uh, speak fluent German and be in this. No, now we hate you because you're polluting our blood. So there's a subconscious set of drivers. And, every, and then people are looking for excuses. I've, I've got to justify why I hate, but I don't know why I hate. And I think, and by the way, one should also point out very strongly that there are always many people who love Jews too, right? This mm. anti-Semitism is never universal. Mm. It's, it's part of society. The more dark and depraved and self-hating and deeply angry parts really hate Jews. And other parts of societies are always phytosemitic and very positive and supportive mm. and loving to this day. But in the dark recesses of the energy that drives the hatred of the Jew that then desperately searches for justification must lie much deeper issues. And one of the issues is, I think in the end, there's very spiritual issues too. But even on a natural level, the point I was making is every, yeah, all these moral movements that dominate the certainly Western and Near Eastern world, if you look at their origin stories, they involve Jews. If I'm a Christian, if someone's a Christian, a viewer is a Christian here, right? And they look at their origin story, the, New, the Old Testament and New Testament, both of them are stories about Jews, right? Now, you can develop that in two directions. There's a Philo-Jewish way of developing that story and say, look, you know, they're God's chosen people and he gave them the law, but, but then... They, they didn't live up to it properly or they did live up to it or, or their values are still there and we're now spreading them to all the other nations of the world. And you could see a relationship between who the Christian is today and the Jewish people. They could see themselves as Judeo-Christian. They could see it like a tree and they're branching it further afield, maybe not as intensely as the Torah, but it's fundamental values. And they could feel a very deep resonance, connection and love, right? Or they could say, one second, the reason that we're now the main dominant chosen people in the world is because the Jew is failed and is evil and is rejected, right? You could develop a deep rejection theology, but then to justify yourself, why are the Jews still in this world? It must be because they're being punished, right? Or right? their very existence then threatens the, the, the anti-Semitic interpretation is threatened by the continuation of the Jew. So now there's a deep livid hatred. There's a resentment. The Jew is a demon. The Jew is evil. The Jew must be rejected. And as an individual, of course, you can be neither particularly philo or anti-Semitic, but Christian theology can't avoid dealing with that question. And some will come up with a positive 
and someone come with a negative. You can't avoid the question. And in Islam, less so, but it's the Quran is full of story about about Jews and Jewish prophets, right? From the second second surah. I mean, you can literally you hardly go three surahs for many, many, many surahs to, without bumping into the story of Jews and the Jewish prophets. And again, do you see that as an, as a kind of an origin and Islam as an outgrowth or maybe a continuation of of a set of prophecies that went through the Jewish people, or do you see it as no, the Jew is rejected, the Jew is evil, right? But it's not just in the religious ideologies, in the secular ideologies too, right? I think, I mean, I have no 100% proof, but I'll tell you about Voltaire, for example, right? The modern, the enlightenment that was meant to be the freeing of the Jew, right? Ended up immediately becoming deeply full of Jew hatred. Well, the ideas of the French enlightenment were not created in France. The ideas of the French enlightenment were created in Britain in 100 years before by a bunch of Hebraists, right? Selby and others. There's, in fact, a book, um, a very important book written by the Harvard professor Eric Nelson called The Hebrew Republic about how all the early ideas that I later became the French. <laughs> you got it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. They, you've got a good, good library there. If you plant that one, like, here, here's what we prepared <laughs> earlier. <laughs> anyway, what he argues there for viewers who are not familiar is that all the early ideas, what happened is like this, is that in the 17th century, the Catholics and Protestants stopped, stopped killing each other militarily and moved to ideological warfare. And the Catholics had this advantage, a 1600-year tradition. And so many of the thinkers in England and in Protestant movements who were, had rejected the Catholic Church looked to the Hebrew sources and said so like this, you know, the church claims to be heirs of the priests. Well, in the Hebrew sources, the priests can't own land. So you could take away the law, but you can't add, right? The church can't own land, can't have too much power. And they began to build this idea that in the biblical story, there's private property ownership, not state ownership. So the church and state shouldn't be owning the land. Individuals should, right? And not these dukes and, and, and feudal lords, right? Or they began to develop the idea that the Bible, the Torah, allows Geratosha for non-Jewish people to have full rights in the land of Israel as long as they adhere to the uh, seven Archite laws, the ethical monotheism. So we should also allow more pluralism, right? The king is a secular institution of the Bible. And, and so they began to build this idea of a republic and a, a secular state. With, and so all these kind of things. Now, whether they got the interpretation right or wrong is irrelevant. The French Revolution comes along, takes these ideas, it has, again, it's got a Semitic, it's got a Jewish root. What do you do with that? You either love that or hate, right? And Voltaire, it becomes hate and demonization. Marx and the early communists, now, how much they were or weren't influenced by Christianity or Judaism is open for debate. But what isn't is that almost all the early communist thinkers, with all their class warfare ideals and, and fighting as excessive capitalism, Marx, and like all his other co-writers pretty much, were Jews or families that had left the Jewish community like his had. And they were typically like Marx, deeply anti-Semitic. They, they saw in their Jewish roots, the demon, the, that which needs to be rejected, right? And so again and again, in, in each ideology that on the one hand is spreading ideals that go back to Judeo-Christian or Jewish roots or Islamic and Jewish roots, these ideals that are flowing through these groups, the groups either develop a love for the origin and root of them, or develop a hatred, right? Either way, it's much, much deeper than the normal love or hate for other groups. You you also have said, said, following on from that very point about how we understand narratives, that because of this, anti-Semitism always comes with a moral critique. Can you can you elaborate on that? Well, sure, yeah, I know. It's actually amazing. I always say this to people, anti-Semitism is not as simple as many other hatreds. Right? Other hatreds are typically dislike of the unlike. 
Now, there are people who look at Jews, think they're different and dislike them. That exists, as exists with so many other hatreds in the world. And we've got to get past all these hatreds, right? But anti-Semitism, most people who, who suffer from anti-Semitism, anti-Jewishness, don't consciously think they're anti-Jewish. That's what I was saying before. It's amazing. I, I think a lot of the biggest hatreds, guys with this irrational, livid, raging hatred of Israel, they put Jeremy Corbyn or, or George Galloway or any of these guys on a lie detector test. They probably would genuinely say I'm not an anti-Semite and pass, right? They're not conscious. Everyone can look at them and go, but you're obsessed with Israel. You have to demon. It always starts with Jew demonization. Right. If you're finding yourself with anger and hatred and finding that the worst possible words of your culture and civilization are being thrown by your brain at the Jew. And if you're honest in the deepest place of your heart, you have a hatred of Israel and have had it that's not parallel to anything similar. So, for example, you might say, I hate occupations and Israel's occupying the West Bank. Right. Do you hate Turkey's occupation of northern Cyprus with the same venom and rage? Oh, no, that's different. But, 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 but then you're probably suffering from anti-Semitism. I hate it because the civilian casualties. Do you hate all the other conflicts with more civilian casualties? Oh, da, 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 da. And then they come up with, oh no, no, but this is one that the West is backing. Oh, right. So that's why in Turkey, nobody's protesting against it, right? Oh, no. And that's why you didn't, you got on the streets and protested when America and Britain were bombing ISIS and civilians dying in Mosul. If you're finding that you're having to excuse and excuse and excuse a raging hatred, there's probably serious anti-Semitism there. But anti-Semitism is always consciously, it's always about Jew demonization, not about Jew hatred. The Jew becomes the demon and whatever society decides is demonic. It will find the dark hatred parts of, of society will find ways to link it to the Jews. However uh, spurious and however much you have to reinterpret words, shall we reinterpret apartheid? Because apartheid means blacks in South Africa can't vote, can't sit on the same benches, can't go to the same universities. And in Israel, everybody can. Lots of parts of the Middle East, they can't, by the way. But in Israel, they can't. No, yeah. no, but but there's an income inequality. There's an income inequality. <laughs> okay, so the whole world got racial and other income inequalities. Uh, that, that's, you know, Israel's working really hard to try to sort out. No, but there's an occupation. Okay, a different legal system. That's the, by international law, you're not allowed to impose your legal system, right? On, on, et cetera. So, but when you're starting to throw her, uh, and then genocide, and like, you know, you're starting to do, yes, due demonization. And I think the reason's this, because, if every one of these moral movements has an origin story that goes back to the Jewish people or the Jewish, right, has a Jewish story, then it, the Jewish people become potentially a bit like a guilty conscience, right? There's, there's this kind of, uh, you know, Christian morality in the world and it goes back to the Jew. And there's this Muslim morality in the world Well, the prophets spoke to the Jewish people. And there's this, uh, this uh, you know, socialist in the world, but it marks us, and all these people grew up in Jewish consciousness. And, it, and, and, and it's like, almost like, we have to hate, it's, it's like an Oedipal Freudian hatred of the origin, hatred of the father figure, but almost the Jew stands for subconsciously, subconsciously, the guardian and channel of prophecy of God, the guardian channel of Judeo-Christian or Islamic-Christian, Judeo, let's say, Abrahamic, let's say, uh, religion in the world. And people, you know, to whatever extent, whether they embrace it or hate it, right? There's this, whether they love it or hate it, there's some kind of resentment to this people who stand for, again, subconsciously, the original, the origination of those types of messages. And so what you now get is, what do I say? I say you're a failure. Right? Again, 
I could be a Christian philo-Semite and, and fantastic. But if I'm a Christian anti-Semite, what it is is that the Jew is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament must have failed, right? And the reason the Jews existed at all is because they rejected Christ and they, they've got to be hated. And therefore, look at them. Let me keep showing you how they are moral failures. You know, if you get to the real purest anti-Semitism that ever existed, Right. The one person who stood up and said, I actually hate Jews, Judaism and everything Jewish. And I'll tell you the real reason. The man was called Adolf Hitler. And Hitler made it was very, very clear in mostly in unpublished, but also published speeches. And, you know, Rauschen quotes him in, in Stevenson and Cameron in the Hitler's table talk that Hitler thought the Jew was the source of conscience in the world. You know, Jews created Christianity, Jews created Marxism, Jews created this, Jews created that. They're the voice of conscience in the world. They're always behind these things. And if the Jew lets go of Judaism, they'll build some other movement somewhere, right? But they are the voice of conscience. And if we want to liberate humans, says Hitler, to basically unleash the animal within and to have stratified societies based on, on might makes right, then we have to get rid of the ideologies, right? Get rid of communism, that's what he tried to do. According to many, he had the plan after the war to get rid of the church, even right, and that's why his the Hitler Youth song was, "We don't, we want to get rid of the Pope and Rabbi, the Pope and Rabbi shall be gone," right? The, these were, these were, but the Jew, he has to get rid of every single one. So built into the psyche of the anti-Semite, an anti-Semitic psyche is kind of a a you Jews, you it's like you think you're chosen, you think you're so good, you think you're this moral critics of us. Well, let's show you what moral failures you are. You're the worst of the worst, right? And the Jew isn't even standing up and saying this stuff half the time, or maybe ever, right? We're not saying the rest of the world's bad, we're not saying anything, right? It's it's an amazing thing. And and yet, but somewhere there's this subconscious feeling of you're evil, you're vermin, you're filth, and you have played this role in society of standing for good and God and all this stuff. So let me show you what a failure you are. And if deep in the subconscious of some parts of the Western world is this almost, almost this like, um, almost this psychology of self-hatred of, of I'm a moral failure. No, it's you, right? You're making me feel that way. This guilty conscious voice, it's the Jew. Let me show the Jew how evil the Jew is. So there's such, there's these complex things going on, but at the end of the day, it's, I think it's, it's an unavoidable, part of the fact that in the consciousness of all these movements is a Jewish origin story and a Jewish origin story that ultimately goes back to the Jew being the messenger of God and godliness in the world. If and again, that will produce philo-Semitism, that will produce deep, subtle, but very deep anti-Semitism. Although if it's trying to rid ourselves of conscience or not hold uh, conscience and morality in any esteem, then why would you need maybe why would you need to say the jew is evil you could say the jew is yeah you might not be evil but i don't I, I want to be evil i don't care about good and evil yeah but but you can't avoid conscience conscience sits inside our brain mm. right so if i feel guilty about something i need to find out what either i rectify myself or i look out there in the world and say who is the evil people who are making me feel guilty mm. Mm. but hitler's explicitly saying I'm not, well, if Hitler can't ignore conscience too, he's basically saying, well, that voice is bothering me and I want to be rid of it. That's what he's saying. Well, Hitler says something else. Hitler says, I want to be an animal. We could have stratify the world. We could have um, a social Darwinism, right? Let might make right, let the Aryans rise above others. What's holding, why are the weak still being treated equally in the world? Because of all these moral ideologies going around, right? Mm. And we can make the world a more animalistic and better place. If only we could free this voice of conscience, let's go and kill the Jew. 
And so let's I, say in the case of Christ, uh, Christianity, where they're still trying to have some kind of moral code. So what is it that's so appealing to them there that they have to... I know I know that you need to deal with Jews in, in order to make sense of your own ideology, but is there... What is it that's drawing people to other ideologies? That, that okay, so one second. First yeah. of all, let's be very clear. Very, very clear. You know, as Jews, we've suffered a lot under Christianity, right? We did. But that's not the same thing as saying all Christians hate Jews or all Christians have hated Jews. No, right? no. It's very, very not. important. And I think Christianity is a very interesting example of many people, many Christians looked back and saw the Jew is the conduit through which we grew and we became, you know, to some degree with universalizing um, Jewish ideas that, that God first revealed to the Jew. And there's a, a love that's created in that sense. There's something very, very powerful. And to this day, many of the strongest supporters of Jews in the world and of Israel are Christians, right? And I think there's a very good reason for that. Now, at the other side, you'll get people who look around and go, you know, Christianity was it was liberating, and and, and we had let we had to do less as a result because the the Jews actually failed, and the Jews betrayed, and the Jews this and the Jews that. But then the Jews are still in the world, and the and the Jew stands for this was the original plan, the Old Testament plan, right? So now the Old Testament has to become evil, and the Jews have to become evil, and, and that's how you see. So we could look at it as the only way we can. The, one could look at Christians. Christians could look at it and say Christianity has grown out of Jewishness. And it's a universalization of some fundamental Jewish principles. Or the Christian could look at it and go, one second, but the very existence of the world today, does that threaten Christianity? Does that make us feel maybe God still didn't ever let go of them and chose us? May, it's a kind of either or, if it's either or and zero sum, then the fact that Jew is still around in the world, maybe we've got it wrong. And maybe we're still meant to be living Old Testament values. Oh no, they're in the world to show themselves because they're so evil and terrible and, and horrific and to suffer for their sins. So that's really it. A, a, the secure way of looking at anything, especially when you look at any origin, it's like any origin. It's like people who are very secure, usually love their parents and people who are very deeply insecure, have a resentment to their parents. And there's that kind of thing going on. So yes, a person could look at it and, and even more than that, you can get the person who wishes they could be free of Christianity or wishes they could just be free of all this stuff and then blames the Jew subconsciously right. for it. Right, right. And let's talk about Islam now, because that in some ways is even more uh, relevant to our times today. Uh, historically, yeah. maybe not, but today for sure. Um, you also said in our conversation uh, last week that um, if you don't know the three words Dar al-Islam, then you do not understand the conflict, which of course in English means Absolutely. the house of Islam. Talk, talk, talk yeah. to us about that. Well, first of all, Islamic anti-Semitism is different. It was rarely as intense as Christian or secular nationalist or communist anti-Semitism. The European ideologies um, were much worse for Jews than Islamic um, ideologies. Uh, Islamic, it was, it was largely being a bit subjugated in some places more and some places less, like being treated as second class or, or the dimmi, the famous dimmi issue and the big debates over how bad was it to be a dimmi. It was essentially a light, it was apartheid, but as Jews, that was quite good. We, we were quite happy to be just like treated as second class citizens and, and uh, generally speaking. And we didn't have the same, uh, same tensions. Again, sometimes it did become massacres. Sometimes it did become forced conversions. But if you kind of take a lot, the gap between massacres in our history under Muslims was much, much bigger than any of the gaps in, in the European and any of the European ideologies. And the level of persecution on average was much, much less. Um, but yeah, I always say to people, 
if you do not know these three words, as you said, then you haven't begun to understand the Arab-Israel and the Palestinian-Israel conflict, and they are Dar al-Islam. And if people right now having to Google those words, at least acknowledge that for 128 years, there's been a war going on since right before the state of Israel, 28 years before the state of Israel began, right? 100, sorry, no, not 104 years it's been going on, 28 years before the state of Israel began. And it's made, the main thing they've been fighting over, whoever didn't know those words beforehand has not been aware of. The fight was not Jews coming to the land, kicking Arabs out of their homes. Jews came to the land from the 18, Jews were always in the land on some level, but they came on larger populations in the 1880s and people weren't being kicked out of their homes. They were buying the land, the Ottoman Empire was letting them have land, typically involving land that couldn't be farmed. Often that's why the Ottomans would give them land only on condition they take, you know, swamp land that can't be farmed as well. And they were doing it. And there were definitely tenant farmers who'd been non owners of the land who were losing land, losing jobs and things like that as a result, but no one was losing, being kicked out of homes. That wasn't, that wasn't the story. And that went on all the way. And it was, the Ottoman Empire was crumbling and states were about to be created that had never been created before, right? You can run across the Middle East and see states that had never existed in the history of the world, like Kuwait or Iraq or Jordan, Palestine, Lebanon, and Israel could be in that, Israel, ironic, could be the one that had existed before. There was plenty in that, in this gigantic Ottoman Empire, there was plenty of room to make a tiny little slither in the old Jewish homeland, in the unpopulated areas to put the Jewish people in. That was not the issue. What happened in 1920 was that the Mufti of Jerusalem, right, the, you know, who, exactly how he got to his position of power is a whole other story, but Amin al-Husseini, or Hajj Amin al-Husseini, the Holy One, decided there's a big problem here. This is the Dar al-Islam. This is part of the Islamic world. These are lands that have been under Islamic domination and are not allowed to go to the Kufa. They cannot go to the heretic, okay? Whether the Jews, the heretic or not, who knows? But it cannot be, it cannot go under non-Islamic rule. And that's why he instigated the 1920 Nebi Musa riots, the first attacks, mass attacks, mass coordinated attacks on Jewish communities in the land of Israel. Right. That's where it began. And that has been the conflict ever since. Right. The conflict has been, can we have a non-Islamic state in this land? And that's why you can go to the streets of London and interview all these fanatics protesting. Right. You can go to the Hamas and ask them a simple question. The Hamas is obviously wasn't there in 1920, but it's an heir to that ideology that's been there all along. Right. And you can ask them a simple question. Would you rather option A? The, there's a Palestinian state with full, free, free Palestine. You got it all free. It's all free. You might even be a liberal democracy if you want that. It can be an Islamic radical state if you want that. Whatever you want, right? In the West Bank, in Gaza, and in take back chunks of Israel, 1947 borders. Go further than that. Push all the way to the Peel Commission borders. Just one little bit of land that is not under Islamic control. That's option one. Option two, no free Palestine. The Palestinians live under subjugation, but Muslim forces from somewhere else come in and take over the land. Maybe Syria takes the whole thing, or Jordan, or Egypt, or the Arab League, or the rest restoration of the Ottoman Empire. Which would you rather? A free Palestine, but there's a little bit of land in which there's non-Muslim control? Or a non-free Palestine, but there's no non-Muslim control? And without a moment's hesitation, the average guy shrieking and screaming, of uh, uh, in the, the fanatical jihadis who are protesting will absolutely say put under Islamic control. We don't need a free Palestine. We need it free from non-Muslim control. That's what we need it from, right? They don't need, they don't need, they don't need independence of Palestinian people. That's not relevant, which is why 
the original Palestine National Movement was created in 1964. The PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, was created by the Arab League in 1964, and it did not include the West Bank, and it did not include Gaza. It was the rest of Israel. So, and that's not, I'm not depriving, I'm not arguing against Palestinian national rights, and I'm not, I'm not arguing that they shouldn't try to find some kind of solution where there is a free Palestinian state if they could make peace with Israel, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm very supportive of finding some kind of way to do that if we could. But the point is that we is that people are like, you know, why doesn't Israel just give them a land? The short answer is because their plan would be to destroy the state of Israel, yeah. not to raid the border and kill a few people. Right. If Israel gives back land right now, the entire state of Israel is destroyed. The, the lands that it would give back, the West Bank overlooks the, from there to the beach is nine miles at its narrowest. You can't defend territory like that. So this is the problem Israel has been facing from the beginning. This is the conflict. And this is what's motivating. This is what motivates hundreds of thousands of people to get out the streets and shriek and scream. It's not about Palestinian rights. It's about the fact that it's Dar al Islam. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. But then we have to move on to the question, which is that, but there's a lot of people in the rest of the world, in the non-Islamic world, especially who are people who are politically on the left, although I'm also seeing a little bit of this now happening on the far right as well. Um, but they're in love with this narrative. And it's so, I basically have to laugh and find it humorous that it seems to go against so many of their principles about minority rights, about indigeneity, um, about, you know, especially even people living in, in uh, Palestinian territories, a lack of rights for people of certain uh, minorities and orientations, all the rest of it. Um, you, can you just talk a bit about that and how, how do we make sense of that at a, at a deeper level in terms of just the, the, the hatred there? Because that, it seems to kind of not really, what you said so far doesn't really seem to explain that. Well, okay, so, so there you got a set of different issues. And, and by the way, socialism and Marxism function very much like a religion. Right? They, mm. they play the role in their adherence that religions play. They give ideological purity. They define the world in good and evil. They give groupthink certainty. They, they do a lot of, they basically function exactly like a religion. You know, you, you've, and you've had uh, Jewish Marxists from the beginning. I mean, they were born to a Jewish family, but their religion is Marxism, right, or socialism. And a big part of that orthodoxy from the beginning was anti-Jewish and anti-Zionist. Again, the early communist thinkers were almost all very, very ferociously anti their Jewish roots, ferociously anti anything resembling Jewish peoplehood, and that meant they were anti-Zionist from the beginning. Now, what that ideology, what the left has kind of bought into is another model. And you're right, it is ironic that they, they link up um, with the groups that they would generally be completely not ideologically aligned with. They'd be ideological enemies of. But what they've managed to do is make the Jew the colonialist, right? So the exploiter, the, uh, you know, oppressor. They've got all these words for the Jew. Now, not the Jew. God forbid we don't ever hate Jews. Just the Jewish national entity and polity is the most oppressive, Zionist. repressive, colonialist yeah. in the world, right? And that's the same typical process. Now, the irony that I tell you, I was a few weeks ago in, in America and I was speaking to um, some students from Canada. 
And I think in Canada, what they're up against is everybody's now on the left is into this um, indigenous rights, indigenous rights, indigenous rights. And one of the Jewish students said to, to ferociously anti-Israel uh, student said when they're talking about October, when they're talking about October, the actual the actual October the seventh attacks, which they thought was justified, right? And they said, well, if an indigenous native tribesman from Canada came to your door and started saying we're going to kill you all unless you get out of it, what would you say? And the student turned around and said, if they were ready to take over my home again, I'd give it up for them because they have the rights to it. And this guy was just flabbergasted. And I said, to him, I wish I was there with you because, you know, I'd have said to the guy, I said, but, but they haven't been there for hundreds of years, right? There's been centuries. You've been running the land and building the cities and building the place, right? And the guy would say, no, 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 but I don't care. Indigenous rights, even from centuries ago, Trump's, they have a right to kick us all out of our homes. Well, what about the indigenous people of the land of Israel who were kicked out of their homes? Do they get the right to come back centuries later? Even not kicking anybody out of their homes, do they get the right to come back centuries later? Oh, you know, like, and then, well, yeah. we have to find some distinction. You understand how ludicrous or, or it is? Or we're not the real Jews anymore, let's say. Right, that, that's another example. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, and that's what happened, 19, right? So, so 1948, I mean, Jews settling the land and dividing the Ottoman Empire and giving a little bit of it to the Jewish people, a tiny little bit to the indigenous people in the only place that's ever been a Jewish homeland ever in history right, to allow us to have a little bit of it too, would have been the most obvious thing for any indigenous supporting person to think about. There's different groups indigenous to the land, let them all have bits of the land. Dividing the land is straightforward, right? And then, but who came to kill whom? It wasn't Israelis, Zionist Jews going out there trying to kill the locals. It was this ideology of we've got to drive the Jews into the sea. They came to kill the Jewish people. And as the Israeli Israel forces counterattacked, they fled their homes. And then what the Arab League could have done is said, okay, let's make peace with this Jewish entity, right? Peace with the Jewish state. And then all, some, most men can return to their homes. No, no, you know, and even in 1967, no peace, no recognition, no negotiation. You know, when Egypt made peace with Israel, right? It was, it was kicked out the Arab League. How can you make peace with this entity? So, so what's this left-wing madness all about, right? And again, I think it's the same principle. Not everybody on the left is anti-Semitic. Not everyone on the left is anti-Israel. Not everyone on the left hates Israel. But it's very deep, very widespread on the left. This raging hatred of Israel. And Israel's come to symbolize for them anything evil in the world, right? So it's occupation and 75 years of occupation. You listen to that word, 75 years of occupation of what? Of the West Bank? Israel wasn't in the West Bank 75 years ago. Israel didn't even get into the West Bank till 14 Arab armies came to destroy it in 1967. Israel offered the land back for peace. So this raging lunacy. And Rabbi, I have to touch on one issue that I often hear raised, especially by the haters, um, which is they'll say, well, if you're saying that it's, uh, you know, it's just um, lies and demonization and racism towards Jews, all the, all the hatred towards Israel, then why do you have people like Nature Carter people who even call themselves religious Jews that hate Israel. And they'll say that actually they have good religious grounds for real, you know, real religious Jews actually don't even believe in the right of a state of Israel to exist. So I think we have to touch on that and, and, and unpack that a little bit because that comes up again and again. Well, yeah, but the irony is it proves the opposite of what people want it to, to prove. Um, Nature Carter's theology is theological anti-Semitism. Their view is, and they bring texts to support this view, is that because the Jewish people sinned, 
right? Therefore, God's thrown us into exile and we're meant to accept exile and persecution as a punishment for our sins. So in other words, they see that Israel is a rebellion against accepting being persecuted. In other words, they believe theologically we should embrace a certain amount of anti-Semitism. It's part mm -hmm. of, our, of what God wants from us. So, now you can debate them theologically, right? Do we have a right but as Jewish people? So they're to acknowledging that it is anti-Semitism. <laughs> If the Tory cart is coming to your protest, it's because they think you're anti-Semitic. In other words, they theologically need anti-Semitism. They don't like Zionism because Zionism is an anti-anti-Semitism. Right, now we right. can debate the theology of that, but they're proof. <laughs> Literally, that's what they believe. They, they yeah. believe that you don't yeah. want to say, this is anti-Zionist, not anti-Semitism. They are proof. They, they are anti-Zionist because they need a certain amount of anti-Semitism. Yeah. They yeah. believe we're wrong to fight completely anti-Semitism. <laughs> yeah. But but what what is your answer to because they often pick up I think it's that um, page in uh, the Gemara in the Talmud in Ketubot uh, that says that uh, the Jewish people took on an oath not to go on mass to the land of Israel prior to the Messianic times. Um, what what's your your response to that? Because I know also another one of the oaths is that the nations of the world won't overly persecute us, and of course they didn't stick to that one, so they broke that rule. Yeah. I don't have any <laughs> The great rabbis of, of generations have debated this on, but th there's many different things to say. But one simple point is, well, what's called the nations of the world inviting us back? The prophecy is always referred to, Nachmanides has a whole piece in, in the prophetic text about how they're going to invite us back, and that will be when the oath is gone. So, you know, when you had the League of Nations invite the State of Israel back, or when you had the United Nations do it, or even earlier than that, arguably, once you started getting the, the conferences inviting the Jewish people back in, then at that point to their homeland, that should have been the end of the oaths. Now, Naturi Carter will say it isn't, and that we're meant to accept again. <laughs> but their argument is, like I was saying earlier, is that they are saying we should accept and we should embrace and we should want a certain amount of anti-Semitism. What about um, the, let's say, Jewish people who are secular, but they are very hostile to Israel? Presumably it's the same principle. Most most are on the hard left. Most of them are part, their religion is socialism, right? Mm. Or, you know, you get people suddenly emerge as a Jews. It's like, we've never known you were Jewish. You never did anything Jewish in life. But like, as a Jew, what makes you a Jew? Uh, my father was Jewish, my great-grandfather was Jewish, someone was Jewish. Now, I'm not saying we should, and this is very important, we should always listen to criticism, right? We should always listen to criticism. But you don't need to be swayed by the fact that somebody has a Jewish mother or grandmother or father or grandfather or something whose religion is communism or socialism and who is part of their religious socialism has hated the state of Israel for decades before this came up. Right, and mm. probably would take the state of Israel at any borders or boundaries anywhere. So, so that doesn't need to. That that's not. That shouldn't shake or perturb us. What we need to be able to do is accept, is question ourselves all the time, right? But not be moved just because hordes or masses shriek and scream very, 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 very loudly. If we did that throughout history, by the way, there were always hordes and masses shrieking and screaming very, 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 very loudly against Jews. And there were always Jews who gave in and said, you're probably right, we're probably evil and terrible, let's abandon our Jewishness, right? And uh, that's not, history's taught us that's not the right response. And, and I say it slightly differently. I think when you zoom out really to anti-Semitism, and this is something, you know, you asked at the beginning, like, are we just doomed? The radical right, the fanatics there, will always hate us. The radical left, the fanatics there will hate us. The radical jihadis will fade to hate us, right? 
is this now this painful, hopeless reality of there's nothing we can do to end this centuries and centuries of hatred? And I think there's a positive message. And you mentioned at the beginning, you thought there's positive messages. The positive message is, you can look at any of these protests and you see very, very deranged people and very twisted people, right? Not saying everybody who believes in left-wing ideology is twisted, God forbid, there's lots of wonderful left-wingers in the world, right? There's lots of wonderful people who are Muslim and lots of wonderful people who are Christian and there's lots of goodness in, in all these ideologies as well, by the way. There's lots of, of beautiful ideas and things that could make the world a better place and do very often, right? The, the concern of the left for the downtrodden and the poor, that's straight out of the prophets of ancient Israel, that's beautiful, right? The concern for all these ideologies, Right? We, we cry over the civilian casualties in Gaza no less than they do. Right? We just understand that they're the horrific ideology of Hamas. Hamas says to Israel, we're coming to kill millions of you. And your only way to get us is we put millions of our own in the, in the fire line of fire. And somehow Israel's managed the miracle of keeping over 99% of the civilians alive who Hamas put in the, in the firing line. Not that it's nice to be a Palestinian in Gaza right now. But what Israel's managed to do to keep so many of them alive who Hamas tried to condemn to death, this is unheard of, right? And properly all over the world, what the left should be campaigning for is, one second, no army's ever had as difficult a fight as Israel's got in Gaza. No army's ever had to deal with 400 miles of tunnels underneath every part of the civilian infrastructure, ever, right? With this level of intensity. It, was, it makes what ISIS had in Mosul look like child's play. How come Israel, even if we believe the Hamas figures, has the lowest civilian to combatant ratio of urban warfare in history, right? Of where the civilians are there. We should now be calling commissions to study this war. And can we get the British army, American army to learn the te learn what Israel is doing so that if we ever do have to go to fight ISIS in Mosul, we won't be killing at least three to one. And the, be you know, the best case scenario is 10,000 civilians to get 3,000 uh, uh, ISIS fighters. 12,000 civilians. I mean, there's a report I saw in the Independent at the time where, where they thought there was a very reliable Kurdish figure that as many as 40,000 civilians had died in this. Nobody was trying to kill the civilians, but they were stuck as human shields with ISIS underground. How could we learn from Israel so that in the next wars is going to be more and more civilians being saved? And yes, it's tragic the amount who've died in this war. Tragic. But the amount who've been saved because of precision under Israel's had to use heavy bombs because no other armies had to fight these bunkers 50 100 meters underground but it's managed to make them precise so so many civilians have been saved it's moved civilians in different parts of the strip to keep them out of the fighting even though that's allowed the Hamas leadership to move with them to keep civilians alive it brought 150,000 tons that's what should be going on in the world right now so where's the positive in all this I'm sorry I've said a lot of things I hope so, so this has been useful the positive is this if you look at the most evil people in human history, who everyone would agree the most evil, are the extremes of every ideology. Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden, right? Whichever ones you want to pick. And you can go on. What do they all have in common? An obsessive hatred of the Jew. So what does that tell you? It's the same as what I was saying before about the origin stories. In the psyche of the darkest, most depraved parts of humanity, in the most evil parts of the world, darkness and evil hates what stands for good and light. And the obsessive hatred of the most twisted parts of the extremes of each ideology, the obsessive hatred tells you darkness hates light. And it makes us have this uncomfortable conversation with ourselves. Do we consciously or otherwise stand for one of the forces of light in the world? Does the fact that the Jew lies at origin stories of so many 
ideologies? Does the fact that these stories begin with the journey of God's relationship with the Jew. Does the fact that the prophets of ancient Israel gave the world a whole new moral way of thinking that echoed through different Western revolutions and ideologies, does the fact that in the 17th century they went back to the Judaic text to learn new moral thinking, does the fact that the resonance of the call for world peace in a world that obsessed about war, a call for the right to every life, even a disabled child, in a world where ancients used to kill disabled children? Does the fact that the prophets of Israel were the first to articulate world peace as an ideal, care for the weakest as, as the absolute ideal and the voice of God, right? Does the fact that these things are there and maybe form some of that guilty conscience in, in parts of the world, does the fact that darkness always comes against the Jew have to do with that? That the Jew has been, as Tolstoy is reputed to have said, you know, was the first to reveal the oracles of God and was the guardian of, of his prophecy and its transmission. Does that have something to do with the evil of the world hating the Jew? Does that have something to do with the uncomfortable rage in the most agitated parts of the world always directing it at the Jew? Does that start to explain some of the demonization? Oh, this channel of light in the world. No, it's really dark and really, really evil. Does it explain why so much of the good of humanity loves Jewish people as it loves all parts of you. If you love humanity, you usually love the Jew too, right? If you love God and, and his creation properly, right? There won't be a problem loving the Jew. On the contrary, there'll be something really very strong and attaching in the narrative. And yet on the darker side, the kind of twisted subconsciously self-hatred, hatred of root, hatred of origin in the darkest, most Stalin, Hitler, depraved parts will be darkness hates light. Because if that's true, then that real answer to anti-Semitism, yes, we've got to call out the hypocrisy where we see it, but we can't quell it with reason alone. We can't stop hatred just by pointing out, because if someone hates you and, and then they constantly come up with a thousand justifications and you keep changing, if every time you try to change what you do to fit what the anti-Semite says, it's because you're moneylenders. Okay, we'll stop being moneylenders. We'll just live poor in ghettos. No, it's because you're poor in ghettos. You can't change your behavior. But what you can do is shine more light in the world because darkness goes when there's enough light. You see, the one message anti-Semitism has for us that probably is correct is we're not doing our job in the world. As Jews, we're meant to be shining a light into the world, as are all good humans, right? But we're meant to be shining godliness into the world. And maybe if, when we're not shining enough light, darkness comes to get us, then maybe the answer is let's shine more light. Let's do more good, right? Because in the end, the goodness in humanity will win over the evil in humanity. The goodness that's there in all ideologies, in all groups of people all over the world will win out. And if we want to get to the dream, we as Jewish people do not ever want Israel or anyone else to have to fight a war. We hate the fact that our soldiers who are going and doing the best, our soldiers, our cousins, our friends, right? Jewish people are going to war and with the best efforts to try to save millions of Israelis from Hamas and with the best efforts to keep every civilian alive, at the end of the day, civilians are dying. That hurts us. That pains us, that injures us. And when people throw horrific things at us, so we say, oh, you're so ridiculous. But when they shut up and silence, wouldn't we rather that we brought so much light into the world nobody hated and we didn't have to go and fight? So let me, that's not to blame us, right? Self-blaming or self-hatred is not the answer at all, God forbid. Right? All these accusations are, are unhinged, are horrific, right? Are, are indicative of what's been all the time in history. And in fact, they're great lessons to us because we never really understood how this mob hysteria works. But the positive is that darkness hates light, then shine more light. 
And that's not just true of Jews, it's true of all good people in the world. Shine more light, eventually darkness will go. The world's ideologies have moved in a direction of goodness over thousands of years and can do even better. And eventually we'll get to the point where darkness has evaporated altogether. And now I would say, you know, um, well, sorry, I've talked a lot. Maybe you've got more questions. Well, it's, before, it's but... ironic to me that, that Jews of all people seem to be the ones that push back on this idea of this chosenness and this mission to you know be vessels for for god's god's light um why is it that we put that we often push back on that that role um and do you think that that needs to change so it's a great question it's a great question i think it's because we're embarrassed that sounding chosen sounds like rejection of other and we're embarrassed that um that it invokes hatred evokes hatred in other right it's very interesting because many, many groups and ideologies around the world claim to be chosen and people just smile very sweetly when the Jew says it evokes this, Whoa! again, almost as if subconsciously I'm scared maybe it's true. But actually, the Torah doesn't describe it that way at all. God says to us at Sinai, you'll be mamlechas kohanim v'goy kodesh, a nation of priests and a holy nation. Well, priests in many ancient civilizations meant people of privilege. In the Torah, the priest is not given privilege. They have no political power. They can't own land. They're people of responsibility. Mm. So what God's saying is, are you willing to take a responsibility upon yourself? That, but notice something else very powerful. In most cultures, if one group has some chosenness or responsibility, it means everybody else is rejected. The Torah is jam-packed full of the idea that one person taking a responsibility does not mean anybody is rejected. The priests within the Jewish people do not imply there's a rejection of anybody else. The tribe of Levi is chosen. Nobody else is rejected. Exactly. The Torah is not, it's not a book about God saying, I've got a special relationship with you Jewish people, the rest of the world. No. On the contrary, you're taking a responsibility to help spread goodness in right. the rest of the world, not to there's make no them point Jewish. Having, there's no point having priests if they have no one to preach to. <laughs> exactly. And this is the most amazing thing. In Judaism, look, most religions begin their calendar at the point when their religion begins. As if like the rest of history doesn't count. This is the really significant bit. The Jewish calendar doesn't begin at the beginning of Judaism. It doesn't begin with Moses or the Torah or the coming out of Egypt. It doesn't even begin with Abraham. It begins at the moment of Adam, the first, let's say, human to have a certain level of soul or spiritual connection. Judaism is not about the Jewish people. It's about humanity, right? We don't seek all humans to be Jewish. We seek that through what we're bringing into the world and through goodness all over the world, humanity will eventually restore the consciousness that was there in the state called the Garden of Eden, which is another whole talk, when we all become one. So we, we aren't in the world. Our claim is not a rejection of anybody anywhere. And that's why Jews get very uncomfortable. We're not rejecting anybody. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility. We took on a very important job. That job is written about in the Christian texts. It's written about in the Muslim texts, right? Without rejecting anybody. And whilst embracing so many others in the world who are trying to do good and living the Noahide covenant and the ethical monotheism and all these wonderful things and caring about the weakest in society and wanting the world to be a godlier place, we can embrace all of that. And we do. On our annual Rosh Hashanah, Day of Judgment prayers, we pray for the whole world to become one. Not the whole world to become Jewish, notice. The whole world to be godly and to become one, to join together in godliness. That message is not a message we should be afraid of as a Jewish people, right? It's a beautiful message. It's a message we should want the world to have. But does it imply that humans can be better than humans currently are? Yes, it implies Jews can be better and all humans can be better, right? Does that make people uncomfortable? Maybe, but we shouldn't feel uncomfortable to all want to be better and do better.
that should be something we all want to resonate with, right? And if that evokes darkness and hate, then just shine more light. So, so you said earlier how the restoration of Israel is so threatening to ideologies that have to have a relationship with Jews and they choose a negative relationship. Um, what's the pathway to people in those camps having healing that relationship, coming to terms with the, rest the restoration of the Jewish people to the land? How can we help pave that path? You see, what, what, yes, the point is this, is that if a person adopts a philo-Semitic interpretation of Christianity, right, then the Jew coming back to the land is beautiful. It's righting one of the greatest wrongs in history. It's bringing a people who are exiled, tortured, and scattered all over the world back to the homeland. It's bringing a people who once were in a covenant with God in the land back to the, who kept the covenant of God out of the land back into that covenant. And it doesn't undermine Christianity. And there's no reason why it should undermine Islam either. There is a theological issue of Dar al-Islam, but there are plenty of Muslim theologians who, have re, who, who are e easily comfortable with the idea that as long as the state tolerates Islam, it can be called Dar al-Islam, right? If a person has a philo-Semitic interpretation, then the Jew in the land is not a problem. On the contrary, it's writing history is perhaps one of history's greatest evils. And it's it's bringing goodness and it's, it's perhaps a sign of redemption. And people might even hear that in, in religious notions of religious terms. So the answer is already there, but to the people who have to look at the Jew as the rejected evil and who are in the world just to experience their own suffering, coming back to the land is a complete threat to that ideology. You know, those who already had an anti-Semitic interpretation, that interpretation is now deeply threatened by the return of the Jew to the land. And That's like, oh my Israel. goodness. What's that? And they have to get rid of Israel, must be eliminated. That's right. It must be the very existence of Islam must intrinsically be evil, right? And we must want to justify its complete dismantling, is a word you'll hear, right? Get rid dismantling, of course, means the slaughter of millions of Jews. It's not going to dismantle by itself, <laughs> but that's the justification. You've got to find just it. Oh, so let's attach the most evil possible words to it and stretch their meaning ludicrously in order to get there. Yeah. But the good news is, the good news is, twofold. Number one, so much of humanity is not in the depraved evil. It, it's true. What I do think is yeah. true is that one of the things we've learned in this is how people can get swept up. And, you know, we often scratch our heads and think, how did blood libels work in, in, in ancient times? How, how did people on mass start to believe Jews were killing Christian babies and drinking their blood? Or how did the whole mass of German society turn against Jews in, in a very short span of time from being a civilized liberal democracy to such raging hatred? And we can see it all unfolding before us. People start by saying ludicrous things like the Jews benefited and profited from World War One and humiliated the Germans. And now everybody laughs and thinks it's ridiculous. The Jewish state commits apartheid. Everybody laughs and thinks it's ridiculous. Genocide, <laughs> lunacy asylum for you, right? But then more people say it. And then hundreds of thousands of people come out on the streets and start. And then the newspapers that advocate start circulating and throwing words around. The Jews were the rich bankers. They were part of conspiracies. And maybe there was a Jewish banker somewhere who benefited from World War One, as there were people all over the world who benefited. And, and plenty of Jews really lost. But no, 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 look at them all. And, and maybe they disproportionately benefited. And maybe they disproportionately in war. And maybe this and maybe this and stretch. And now, and now you get the obsessive media personalities and obsessive public speakers are starting to throw that and then hundreds of that, and then people in the middle are beginning to say oh i don't know 
maybe maybe there is something to this yeah. maybe there yeah. is something and, and then you start to get you know the politicians start to scream look at the victims of the jew look at the and they're right and they're, they're, look at these baby christian babies dying it must be through the jews look at the black death happening it must be due to the jews look at these poor people it must be right look at these look at these palestinians look at what's happening when israel's fighting with the lowest civilian casualties. but the civilians dying can we obsess about it for 100 days and show every single one of the cameras forget the fact there's 32 other wars, wars going on forget the fact there's millions of people. just look at these victims of the jew let's rage against them let's uh, you know that's uh, and then those in the middle like, I, I don't know maybe it's terrible maybe maybe it is and right and those defending and I, I don't know it's really really hard it's really, right and and, and then etc 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 so yes. we're seeing all this play out we're watching now all those guys tweeting all the stuff are going to be in the future museums of anti-semitism we're going to actually have a live demo where people will be able to go down TikTok and down this and watch and, and go out to the people who shrieked in the streets and, and walked to the restaurant shrieking genocide genocide whilst not caring about the millions of people dying all over the world right we're going to see all this Mm. And we're going to understand not just how it's happening now, but how it's happened in every generation. The same when when there's been these raging hordes and mass group things, and people get swept up. Innocent people get swept up into it. People don't always think individually; you think in collective. So the more people throw words at you, and you're in their world, the more I guess there might be truth to it. And that's kind of the stuff that's going on. So that's I, I didn't. I, <laughs> that's not the positive I wanted to take out of it, by the way. But that is something at least we can at least understand yeah. the process yeah. of the generation. Yeah. 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 The positive I really want to take about it is, is, is a message which I've shared on other videos before, and it's so powerful. And it comes from my wife's grandmother, who was an Auschwitz survivor. In 1944, Hungary, the Germans finally took over Hungary, right, and started mass deportations of the Jews straight to the gas chambers. And, uh, and she was on a train with, I think, 200 of her relatives, all the cousins, the second cousins, the third cousins, all lived in the same village, 200 of her cousins. And by 40 minutes, an hour into being in Auschwitz, she was probably one of only three survivors. And she always thought she was the only survivor. And she's taken groups back to Auschwitz and I've been back with her. She's not well enough now is anymore this, to is do this it. Bobby? She, this is Bobby. If you, have you interviewed her on JTV? I, I went to Bobby being, Oh, wow. So you'll know this. So Bobby, by the way, for those who don't know, is not is not a Jewish Robert. Bobby is means grandmother, and, and so she, she's she's one of those wonderful, wonderful people who just everybody connects to as a grandmother. So they call her Bobby or Bobby, you know, um, Mrs. Eva Newman. And Even I'm Newman. blessed that I'm married to her granddaughter and my children, her great grandchildren, um, some of whom are named after family members and so. On. But the the um, what was I going to say? So. A cut yeah, out for some who are named off. I'm not sure that's true. I didn't think about it. Cut out what? Right. Sorry. It, the bit about some of them are named after her family members. Okay. I don't remember if okay. that's true. Um, okay. Um, and one of the things she would always say, and I've heard other survivors say it too, is if you could put us back in Auschwitz and offer us to be the us, the inmates, the people inside who were sorting clothes or who were in the gas chambers being killed, right? Or we could be a, the guards sitting around, laughing and hating all of us, but having great food and so on. I would go back every single time and be the Jews inside. The little Jew somewhere who tried to do good in the most hellish place on earth. The Jew who gave their last rations to somebody else who was starving next to them. Or the Jew who just said, you know what? I'm being hated, downtrodden and being killed for what the Jewish people stand for. I would rather always be them. And she managed to walk out there after the biggest darkness ever right and eventually rebuild a family eventually spread good spread light spread good spread light
And that's this thing is that there's so much good in the world. It's not all depraved. It's not all dark. There is a lot of good people in the world. But as a Jew, let's be proud. Let's be proud when, when the darkest parts of the world hate us. Let's be proud when we see this crazy, twisted, convoluted rage that, that just doesn't make any sense. Right? Let's be proud and understand that if anything, our job is to bring more light. If anything, our job is to be more good people, to be more Jewish, to be more human, to be more of this in the world. And yes, of course we should, and we do cry over every Palestinian civilian death that we see. Of course we do. We cry over every Jewish death. We cry over every Muslim death. We cry over every death. And not just in the conflicts that Jewish people are involved in, but conflicts all over the world. Yes, we should be pained and are pained by what's going on right, in, in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and what's going on in Somalia, and what's going on in Yemen, and what's going on in Syria, and what's going on all over the world. And let's understand that we took on a covenant to bring so much light into the world that all of this will eventually go, and all of it will, will eventually be able to live together in peace, all of us, and love, and godliness, and be able to build a humanity that can be a home for God in this world. And humanity has gained by all these positive ideologies, by things that began with the story all the way back with the prophets of Israel in antiquity, right, in the Torah, and has spread, many values have spread through Christianity and spread through Islam and spread through the founding fathers of America and spread through communists. Lots of ideas have spread and made the world a better place. And if we keep shining light in the world together, then we can make this world a very bright place. And all the darkness and hatred will always have been worth it. Will have been worth it. There's nothing, no greater privilege than that the darkness in humanity keeps coming to attack you. Because that means that maybe they see in you a light you never really saw in yourself. Absolutely. Rabbi Rowe, thank you so much for your time.